everyone, welcome to a new episode of Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. We're on episode 16. Uh, I'm your host, Evan. And I'm your host, Tom. And welcome, hope you're having a lovely day wherever you are listening to this. Uh, on today's episode, what are you going to talk about, Tom? Uh, today, I'm going to talk about a study on LSD microdosing. I'm also going to talk about uh, blood transfusion science and blood substitutes. And because this is such an interesting topic, I have divided it into two parts. So today's part one, and next time it's going to be part two. Cool. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, and today I'm going to talk a bit about uh, the microbiome. And there's been a lot of talk about it and the hype. So I just want to see, is it all hyped up as it, as it meant to be? in how it can be used to solve a lot of disorders or is it a bit of um is there is there much truth to it very uh, interesting evan thanks and we also have john back on our episode today yay, uh, yay. hey everyone i'm back to talk about space <laughs> yeah he's going to tie up the whole uh, because he was back in one of the early episodes to talk about the perseverance rover so just to kind of tie a bow on the whole story Okay. Anyways, how are you, Tom? How are you getting on? It's been um, yeah. We had we didn't have J- lovely Jim McGettrick on last week. Um, thought it was a really good episode. Yes. So we haven't really had our regular podcast since then. Um, so mm-hmm. how are you keeping? Good. I got angry <laughs> because there's too many this stupid Instagram post that I saw that starts with "Oh, let's normalize." Do, do you know how angry it makes me? When I see, oh, let's not marize not being okay. You didn't (laughs) discover, like, universe. Oh, I have such an urge to use, like, F word or any other bad word to describe my feelings towards these people. And I can't. And I literally, if I see one more post that starts with let's normalize and it's going to be one of my friends, Mm -hmm. I will punch them in the face. That's just what it is. I hate them. I don't want to ever see them again. Other than that, I'm fine. (laughs) What was it? Normalize just certain behaviors. Yeah, it's but like the most. Sh- Can you give an example? Yeah, this like oh, let's normalize not being okay. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, where is that going? Let's normalize not being okay. And like, what are the consequences of that? Well, what are you trying to say? It's stupid. It's pointless. It's virtue signaling, and it has no body of any weight behind it or anything. It's just someone trying to make themselves feel better about being useless in life and not having any original thought ever. Tom, would you say you're trying to start a conversation <laughs> about this? No, because it has nothing to do with science. It has everything to do with me, and I don't want to bring me into this podcast. But I can talk about it with anyone because it's stupid. Um, it's just clickbaity, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, but I hope it's it's okay. Yeah, it's yeah. okay. Cool. Um, yeah, and I, I suppose to let people know as well, I had got the first dose of the vaccine. Yay! Yay. So it do, it it is possible you will get there. It's a slow process, I know. Um, yeah, so I got the AstraZeneca one at work, and yeah, it was uh, it was pretty rough the the first dose for me. <laughs> Uh, was it rough yeah it was it was rough it wasn't like uh vomiting or diarrhea bad but um it was mm. i had like aches and chills and right. 
almost right. a fever and that pain like the pain from my back like i th- i could t- kind of because i know with immunology and like you're when your body's challenged like you're making blood, immune cells to, to respond and i could just feel like my from my hip bones that the that's what my body was doing but like the pain was just so it wasn't like <laughs> horrendously bad but it was just very uncomfortable right and um, but it passed within a, like when, when i went to bed it passed eventually within an hour or so and uh but it just felt like i felt kind of it took a few days to come kind of right and um, do you feel any uh any other changes since or was it just this kind of a uh, immediate response well not immediate but like this response to the vaccine and then kind of well the immediate response you... was that i felt i was better than everyone because i'm vaccinated now <laughs> uh but no um i know i i was it was fine like, it wasn't like right there wasn't anything uh seriously like long term since i feel fine now yeah well i suppose it's too early to talk about long-term effects right? yeah exactly yeah. but what was it yeah it was funny because i remember when we were reviewing the i think it was the pfizer one and how many people got the fever fever and i we were like oh i wonder is that like an acceptable mm. thing to do and we were like i don't think so but it just showed yeah. that it was like people were willing yeah. to to go to that lens to just get get life back to normal yeah it just really shows that we know nothing really you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> we I, have to I, get better <laughs> yeah yeah i suppose like ideally you don't want these but i suppose people would put up for something kind of i suppose the the serious effects of covid is kind of way worse than just a, mm. a, i suppose a short-term fever so can i give yeah. a perspective on this yeah sure uh, seeing the effects on you from the vaccine doesn't turn me off getting the vaccine um like i wouldn't want those effects if i if if panadol gave me those effects just to get rid of a headache no yeah because the effects are worse than the the thing you're trying to get rid of yeah it's the again it's the the is it worth it and i think in the long run it is right yeah um and like predominantly most people in the at work were fine so i i really would have loved to because it, it is always in the back of my head, like, oh, was it because I had such a bad reaction? Was because I could have possibly had been exposed previously, but I would have loved to have got a blood sample before I got the vaccine just to test, mm. just to check it. Because we are doing antibody study where I am in the lab. Yeah. Um. But yeah, sure. We'll we'll sure see. In the in the hindsight, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, sure. Like I, I think it would have been odd going in to get my blood. I, it was all such a quick process as well. Like we literally, you go down and they're like, "What, what day do you want to get it done?" And I was like, "Okay, this day." So, yeah. uh, but like it was, it was, it was. I'm glad I got it, and I definitely um, endorse vaccines. So, <laughs> what's the atmosphere like when you were actually getting the vaccine? Was it just like in and out, or was it like, "Oh, hi, how are you?" Uh, Did no, it make it, you feel it, okay? It, it was in and out, really. Very okay. quick, like. They obviously queuing up to get in, but once you got in there, you just like confirm right. your details, and that was it. It, it. They check someone checks the vial to make sure that there's enough. They mm-hmm. they've definitely put the correct amount of volume in the mm-hmm. syringe, and then that's it. And then they were like, "You're gonna get the second dose in May." So I think now in in most of the hospitals here in Ireland, anyways, they've done all the healthcare workers. So I think they're going on to the next priority group, which is I think. Immunocompromised, and then I think, do you know who other healthcare workers that wouldn't necessarily work in hospitals, like mm. community health, um, social work, that kind of thing? Mm, okay, and then the old people after them, 
Yeah, they're and still then, they're still doing the old. They're currently oh, doing people in uh, healthcare, like nursing homes, right. and they're doing over eighty fives at the moment. So them too, they're still kind of getting them done. But I think they're nearly should have the over eighty fives done soon. Mm. So. Over eighty fives are mostly done. Um, I know in some areas they've already moved down to the next age category. Okay. Um, yeah. So let us know how it's rolling out in your country. Is it all roses and rainbows, or is it? Um, like if you were in Israel, um, I don't know if we have any listeners in Israel, but uh, I think ha- let us know anyways. Either way, on our Actually, Instagram on, or on our email, skepticallyinclined at gmail dot com. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. On that note. On that note, tell us about LSD, Tom. And right. Uh, uh, interesting. To- interesting uh, topic because mm-hmm. loads of drugs has been made illegal for different purposes. Uh, especially in the like, I think when did the war on drugs started in states? Was it seventies or eighties or even earlier? Basically, everything was banned, and the res- it was not easy to carry out research. And yet, as the time progresses, you always hear this kind of a uh, uh, side noise. People saying that all of these drugs that were prohibited are actually very beneficial, and they can be employed in different medical scenarios to to help people. Like the like MDMA, obviously marijuana is being used or cannabis is being used to release like PTSD or chronic uh, pain. So there's this medical uh, marijuana. But I found this study about LSD microdosing and I've heard about LSD microdosing for a long time now, how it's supposed to have these beneficial, um, beneficial responses in people. Can I and just ask, what what's microdosing then? Oh yeah, so... You can take LSD to get high, to experience the actual trip, and then you take the appropriate number of uh, grams or what. I don't really know how do you take LSD. Is it grams or micrograms? But you take certain amount to elicit the visual response and hallucinogenic response. Microdosing is is all about it's all about reducing this halluc- this dose of a hallucinogen to the point where it has an effect on you but without actually interfering with your perception oh, okay so you can feel so you can feel like i don't think because again i didn't do microdosing so i don't really know what i'm talking about what i'm describing but i i, I would believe it's a kind of sensation that is could be similar to having a, a slight boost but without actually being impaired whether visually or you know audiovisual impairment is not there but so you just kind of have this feeling so it's just I think a, that a minimum amount that would kind of get re- a listener reaction but like not a very to, smart reaction yeah. that's why you are that's why with the microdosing you can you can perpetually doing over a long period of time and people who do it they claim that it kind of the it just makes them a better as a whole as a whole thing so it's not anything particular but for people people who do say that microdose it they just makes them feel better whatever that means um <laughs> yeah it's all a little bit vague but what what have been shown that lsd could have effect on is a treatment for alcoholism and apparently it's because but this is not i don't think this is linked with microdosing this is like having full-on lsd experience when apparently you can put certain things into perspective and that's why how people thanks to these hallucinogenic experiences you can put certain stuff in perspective in your head and 
and possibly that's why people can get off addiction to alcohol because once they experience this hallucinogenic uh, visions and stuff it makes them reevaluate their life choices or something like that plus there is definitely some brain chemistry alterations going on which probably helps with it but i don't want to talk exactly about the mechanism of it because i don't understand that what i do what i do know of is that uh, there was a recently study carried out on a group of 191 volunteers in uh, in london college where the participants were invited to actually participate in this microdosing of LSD. So one group was uh, receiving these microdoses. The other group was given getting placebo, as you would suspect. And the aim of this, pro- this uh, study was to evaluate whether the range of psychological benefits to people is actually true. And this includes treating depression, uh, other mental health conditions, general well-being, cognition abilities, creativity, and such and such. And all of these things were checked in the group of people who did receive the LSD because uh, for four weeks they were taking this microdose and they were filling out online survey. And the results were like that they feel everything was kind of enhanced through this microdosing. Mm. Um, And when they look at the survey from people who got the placebo, it was exactly the same. Oh, there's no difference. So, no, it's uh, technically according to those studies, there is no difference between um, between the LSD user group and the placebo users wow. group. So, what it means is that a placebo, it's either LSD don't do anything, and you just tell yourself that it has all of these beneficial effects, or it could be also that the placebo is such a such a strong inducive thing in your head that you convince yourself that oh, I'm actually taking LSD and it mm-hmm. and then your brain convinces itself that it actually has an effect on me um, but I think it's really good because I think people do over exaggerate and over emphasize the importance of drugs especially like the weed LSD cocaine MDMA they all think that they're being under oppression because these drugs are illegal, but uh, in fact, they are super beneficial. Well, or not really, as this study shows. It's good that these studies out there to put the brakes on perhaps people that are n- more enthusiastic, you know, and they don't really follow science anymore. They follow the ideology, which says yeah. that drugs should be free because they are beneficial and whatever. And uh, no, it's actually not that simple. Yeah, the one that I like, because when you t- I heard you say talk about this paper, I was caught, it was going to go the opposite way where you're like, oh, yeah, it has this all these proven stuff. And I was going to be like, try and be skeptical about the whole thing. But <laughs> it's great that it actually has shown the opposite, that there is an association. Um, because like one of the things I would say is that this there's, there's been so little uh, studies in it. So it's almost like these drugs are like a forbidden mm. um property that you're like oh like mysterious you're like oh this could have so much potential and i wouldn't be surprised so many whatever studies have been done prior to this have been definitely have a by groups or something that have an agenda that are like want to push this kind of narrative with these uh Mm. psychoactive drugs so you're like is it really uh as unbiased as it should be and yeah i do i do think that there is a, a definite benefit in terms of treatment, especially about MDMA and uh, PTSDs. I think there is a link there that should be explored more. 
but let's not be fanatical and obsessed about something. It's uh, let's do it methodically and let's see whether there is some truth to it and not only because we believe in something because yeah. this is not science. To have Believing some concrete is, yeah. evidence. But I was going to say ketamine is another one they're looking at as well, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah. For I, PTSD, I think. I think. Uh, hold on. Actually, I can very quickly proof check it because I have uh, my drug website open. Dark <laughs> <laughs> uh, web, is it? <laughs> I'm not going to say anything more. <laughs> but, but the 2012 study found ketamine could, in fact, hide the symptoms, fight the symptoms of chronic depression, among others. Yeah, so, uh, but that was a 2012 study, so might not refer to what you were saying. I think yeah, they, do, they have been prescribing it clinically in America, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the other thing I wanted to say with that was, so the paper, so they were all healthy they were just healthy individuals. None of them had like alcohol problems, as you were saying. No, but uh, the group of people selected, they already had experience with hallucinogens. So like what, what, what was the aim then? They were just trying to say, oh, did you feel like happier? Yeah, so, yeah, so you had to answer the survey when they were, uh, when you were questioned about uh, well-being, cog cog cognition, creativity, just this kind of uh, terminology to, you know, if you are a better with the microdosing than without the microdosing. Yeah, but it's not, it doesn't really answer a question though because um, you can't. You want to see if it helps in treating a disease. So just picking random healthy people, especially young people who are very much going to be like, oh yeah, I always it's going to have. They're go they're going. I think a lot of these young people would be like, oh yeah, this is definitely going to have a, a reaction in me. So they're always going to go in. Especially but with these psychoactive, you're always going to have a bias to it. I think it's supposed to be like vitamins. When you just take the vitamins, you can all, is it, is would be any benefit to you to take, to do microdosing on a regular basis? Like you don't only oh, take okay. vitamins when you're sick, right? You complement your whole thing by taking uh, vitamins every day or, or any other supplement. So they want to see if it taking the mic doing the microdosing would that benefit you in the mm. in the similar way also i didn't i didn't read the paper uh, the page to page so uh, yeah, maybe in the maybe in the page they do explore some sort of utilization in terms of uh, conditions but i haven't uh, i'm not, i can't comment on this because i don't know yeah yeah yeah, yeah no that's fair enough um, but it's just just to show that either the LSD doesn't really have an effect or perhaps the placebo is so strong in people's mind that it could mimic an actual effect of the um, of LSD if you convince yourself that you yeah, yeah. that you're taking LSD. I like so it's, it's interesting. It's, it's such a vague thing as well. You're happier or more, yeah. more life is more fulfilling. It's just like how do you measure that? <laughs> like I feel happier today. <laughs> Uh, so this is the comment from the thing, just maybe to add to it. The results ultimately showed that those taking LSD microdoses felt better after taking their pill. Significant improvements in psychological measures of well-being, mindfulness, life satisfaction, paranoia. Uh, but then, however, the same benefits were seen in the people taking the placebo pill, with no significant difference differences evident between the two groups. So that's what they measured and there was no statistical difference between two groups. Yeah, I think I think another group has to do the same study. Maybe you have a different participants, maybe tweak some things, but yeah. more studies. 
need to be done as always <laughs> that was cool yeah that was interesting um, yeah. and it gives so, gives some more perspective on the whole microdosing and uh, yeah. you should definitely send that to Joe Rogan yeah well it's evident it, there is evidence that from this paper that there is no point in microdosing so just take the whole thing just enjoy your trip <laughs> for, for, forget about microdosing <laughs> yes okay <laughs> good good message there yeah uh, maybe don't listen to me or do yeah. i don't care do what you want yeah do what you want <laughs> i just can't imagine some of it listen to them like yes i have validation now today <laughs> yeah some tom validated my yeah. life choices i'll just say briefly because yeah, uh, i won't go into it it's just that the i think this whole thing with variants now and this is like such a buzzword in the mm-hmm. covid community um or covid science community anyways and um a new study actually showed that the t-cells are still so t-cells are the your main adaptive immune cell response that can give a specific and really uh a, a more specific but a, a more greater uh, immune response to like mm-hmm. an infection and it showed that the t-cells that are still capable of recognizing emerging coronavirus variants uh, and they showed that um, that they collected t-cells from volunteers who had either recovered from infection with ancestral SARS-CoV-2 strain or had received an mRNA vaccine and the researchers then tested the cell's ability to recognize protein snippets from the four emerging variants and most of the ver- volunteers t-cells recognized all four variants thanks to certain viral protein antigens of the COVID that were still infected, unaffected by the vi- variant mutations that they still needed, the, vi- the virus still needed to be able to infect. So um, I think what this means is that maybe we need to reassess how we're, we're measuring how uh, dangerous these variants are. And because mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the, what they use is neutralizing antibodies. So they basically look at antibodies, see how does it bind to the virus and does it neutralize its capability and a lot of the times they're saying oh there's it's somewhat less effective the neutralizing antibodies but maybe this isn't the right way of really assessing if we should be worried about a variant because it's Mm. if the t-cells are still able to bind and react then the immune spots should be still able to be mounted so Mm -hmm. uh, i think that's just something to be aware of and i think there's a lot of talk about these variants and it can be very overwhelming and yeah. i just feel like they're still very new and there's still not a lot known so i still think the way they're reporting them maybe isn't that necessary yeah. so think, <clears throat> yeah that's the danger if you don't have this um helicopter view of the situation and you only zoom in on one aspect and that for this example these would be like just the antibodies if you think that antibodies are just responsible for mountain and immune response then you're clearly not seeing the whole image and therefore your your conclusion is not the most accurate one or the most mm-hmm. precise one so that's why it's so crucial to have this helicopter view this this understanding of all aspects of what's going on rather than being fixated on herd immunity antibodies herd immunity antibodies there is so much more that yeah. is happening that you just don't see it because you you don't know what you don't know sometimes, you know? Yeah. So that's all I just wanted to say. Quickly mention it because we've we've mentioned a lot about COVID in the past. So just to kind of keep the story mm. going. Uh, yeah, so we might as well go into the end. John, if you want to go on to your story then about the 
the the rover perseverance uh and you want to give us the lowdown of what happened what was it two weeks ago mm. when the when it landed successfully as well yes yeah so the perseverance rover landed on mars on february 18th after 29 weeks of travel time those who listened to the episode that i was on describing its launch it launched on the 30th of july so that was way back near the beginning of the podcast i talked about it Mm. um a couple of really exciting things about this landing what i believe is the first high definition video or video really recorded on mars and the first ever sounds so the rover has two microphones on it Mm. they released uh, an audio clip of some wind blowing by and you can hear like the fans and pumps on the rover (laughs) in action they also isolated the sounds of the rover out so you could just hear that pure mars sound i don't know what the plans will be going forward with the microphone Maybe they could um, record the sound of the rover driving across rocks, that kind of thing. Or if there's any big dust storms, they could record that. John, I think the microphone's for interviews. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. With the aliens. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, we'll keep um, going. The, another really exciting thing about this is for the first time, they had multiple cameras installed on the rover, on the descent stage, on the cruise stage, looking up at the parachutes. So we were, we were able to see those those hypersonic parachutes uh, be fired out like a cannon we could also see the the rover looking down at the ground and you could tell when the sky crane so the sky crane is like a rocket it's like a drone rocket that falls out of the the capsule and lowers itself and lowers the the rover onto the ground that's for anyone who didn't listen to the last episode um, so you can see it's scanning the ground for some like nice flat area. It uses radar. And you can see it kind of banks left and then banks right back to where it's supposed to go near this delta. To me, was the most amazing sight was you could see from the, this rocket drone, the sky crane, looking down at the rover being hoisted down on cables. And then from the rover looking up at the sky crane. And the, the, the best part for me was you could see once the rover touched down, the sky crane releases itself and flies off out of frame. It's, to me, it was just amazing to see something like that on another planet. And for the engineers who built it, they can't actually test the sky crane on its rockets on Earth because of gravity and the atmosphere and everything. Um, so for them, it's great to see that working as well. They can test the hoist. There's a video of that on YouTube of mm-hmm. them dropping the rover. But it's just amazing seeing something fly on another planet. Um, so yeah, that that's really the the main, the most exciting thing to report about the rover so far. Recently, they did a test drive, so they they drove a few feet back and forth to test the the driving system. Mm-hmm. They've sent panoramic images back. Yeah, so the, uh, at the moment, I think they're just really planning out uh, routes. They're probably updating the rover. They also have that. A uh, little helicopter that they brought with them, so yeah. they soon they will be looking for a place to deploy that and to carry out some test flights. Oh, okay, I was just going to ask if they uh, if they have deployed the the helicopter. So for now, it was just kind of landed there, check it if everything is okay, have a few trials going up and down, and uh, so it hasn't actually started exploring Mars just yet. Well, like everything pro- that it properly. sees, yeah. It is exploring Mars all the time, yeah. but they, they, it's still all kind of initial checks proving that it's working. Okay. And uh, 
I remember when, because um, you could watch it, uh, there was a stream on YouTube, right? Yeah, they, the N excitement, it, yeah. the excitement when it was uh, successful, it was, uh, it was unbelievable watching like how, uh, how happy these people were because so much of the hard work and planning came out to fruition and uh, it was just palpable and you couldn't help to smile just with them how mm -hmm. great of a uh, scientific achievement that was for us uh, yeah. yeah it's huge I it's think. just the amount of information they're going to get from this is so massive so like just if something just something was to happen that so minor that would cause it to crash be such a waste so it's just how much info we're going to get out of this is going to be so cool yeah and uh and then just on you what you were saying john yeah i think we were both agreed that the the image of the sky crane hovering above the rover was just insane like like to think that's in another planet um like it's like something that you would would think it in a a, a sci-fi movie not like in real life so um fair play to nasa you're you're and, uh, killing it. Yeah, shout out to the ESA as well. They will be yeah. <laughs> they're developing a way of going and retrieving the samples that Perseverance is gonna leave on the surface. So that will be sometime in the next fifteen years or so. Well, was um, I gonna say that the ESA actually were doing um a promo like they they're taking applicants for astronauts. Oh, so really? I was gonna say, would you ever apply to become an astronaut for ESA? Only if I wouldn't have to like retrain into a different field of expertise, if they would need like a, an unexperienced junior PhD researcher on Mars, <laughs> I would go. But if they would require me to like retrain to something else, I don't think is a, I don't think if, if, it, if I would be willing to do. Well, you do definitely have to train to like be an astronaut so yeah i don't mind the part when they have to train me to be an astronaut that's fine but like enough top of that i would have to learn how to fix like a toilet on mars or something like that i don't want i don't need that but like if you need me to do some sequencing on mars <laughs> i can go and i can prepare a sample for sequencing yeah well you know the same people who do all the plumbing and toilet fixing in space are the same ones who do all of the sequencing on the yeah. space station so oh really Got yeah, it. it's the same all the astronauts have to do everything they're the technicians the engineers the scientists up there okay well then clearly i'm not the right person <laughs> so if nasa hears me or the esa hears me they'd be like this guy is not going anywhere <laughs> uh john do you is it true that they hidden some message in the uh parachute yeah so there was a binary code, I think, um, stitched into the fabric of the parachute. Oh, okay. Evan, do you remember what the message was? I can't actually... I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. But was it... That was... Was that just like a... Uh, like an Easter egg for people watching it? Or is that like... Are they actually hoping that someone will see it from the space, the binary code? And considering that the mathematics is everywhere the same, they were you able to decipher it? No, it was, I think it was an Easter egg. Like, they, they didn't, they didn't declare it. It was people who figured it out themselves. Uh, mm. And I think your man, the, the guy, yeah, the EDL director, he actually mentioned the phrase at the press conference mm. after they had landed. So I think he was kind of like hinting it at it. Um, but I'm glad, I'm sure they're glad someone figured it out without them having to say, oh, we... We hit yeah. this code in the parachute. Yeah, it said, it said, dare mighty things. Oh, okay. Dare mighty things. Very motivating. I like it. I'm like, I like it. I love it. For all those who might be a bit skeptical about why we would send a rover to Mars, 
I would say the same thing about, you know, why did anyone go anywhere on Earth first? Why do we do anything? Um, mm. Because it's cool and we have to have something to look forward to. And in the grand scheme of things, it's it's not even that much of an expense compared to the other things we spend money on. So I say I'm all for it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. Go boldly when no one has gone before. Yeah. Um, cool. That was great. Thanks for the update, Dan John. Um, Thanks for uh, keeping track on that, John. Um, yeah. And we will. Couple uh, of our, yeah, couple we, of our listeners were really, really eager to hear back about um, the Mars situation. Yeah. So we'll eagerly wait to see what is found. I'll be back in fifteen years to let you know when we get the sample spot. <laughs> <laughs> see you in fifteen, John. <laughs> You're banished from the podcast forevermore. <laughs> yeah. So that was great. Thanks for that again. Uh, yeah, so we'll go into our main stories then. Um, yeah, do you, you have keep- a very nice? You have a very nice voice. I'd like to listen to you a little <laughs> bit more. So keep going. Uh, do you want me to keep starting yeah, my yeah, story? Yeah, okay. Keep going. <laughs> okay, I keep going. <laughs> yeah, keep going. <laughs> so today I wanted to talk a bit about the the microbiome and give a bit more give a bit more context to the talk about mm-hmm. how it can be used in different to treat different diseases and um is this true it's a bit, it's a bit like with the your whole lsd talk a lot mm-hmm. of people speculate that it can help but has there been a lot of work um this is like as well a huge topic um yeah. and there's no way i can give it huge this justice and not bore the ears <laughs> off you all so i'm basically just going to give a quick um rundown about uh, maybe a, one positive study and then mm-hmm. maybe a lot of traps that these studies fall into when they're trying to investigate the links. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, yeah, we as you know, we hear a lot about the microbiome in science and it seems like it's almost the holy grail within biology that it can be used to nearly treat everything uh, as well, like obesity, depression, and as well as such broad different types of diseases so or um, stuff like that. And what's microbiome, Evan? Yeah, so I wanted to, so I w- yeah, I w- I'll get okay. into that. Um, so just wanted to have a brief look into it All right. and go into detail, and yeah, hopefully you can un- understand what 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 it means if you hear this mm-hmm. in the news and in media. Mm-hmm. So what is the microbiome? As you were asking, Tom. So the gut microbiome it specifically refers to the population of these resident gut microorganisms, and that includes bacteria. Uh, archaea so these are like these primitive um, mm-hmm. uh, or life organism life forms Sing- single cell organisms. single cell organisms yeah. yeah fungi and they live in the digestive tract of humans uh, which is generally crucial for our health throughout life mm. uh, and just to give some context the colon contains the highest microbial density recorded in any habitat on earth <laughs> with up to 10 to the power of 12 so double the amount of uh, a million yeah so up to 10 to the power of 12 cells per gram of intense intestinal content per gram uh yeah you can't even imagine that number yeah so it's, you, it's, yeah. it's just so vast uh, and 99 percent of these come from about 30 to 40 species okay. um, and still so little is known about these bacteria because we can't really culture them a lot of them you can't culture on uh, agar plates so it's just literally by analyzing them uh, 
through sequencing and through uh, genomes, analyzing the genomes. So do you really require like the specific environment habitat that is yeah, present the, inside the colon or, yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, but it is um, easy to imagine that if you do disturb them because it, it's, they have, they're so um, widely present in mm-hmm. this colon that it would have implications for your health. Um, yeah, so the, the gut flora, it's no, normally established one to two years after birth. It's not just a commensal relationship, which is a non-harmful coexistence, but it's a mutualistic relationship. So the human gets something out of it mm-hmm. and the bacteria get something out of it. So what they the bacteria get out of it is that they have a home to live in and uh, basically survive and they can, um, yeah, that's how it really works. And then the human gets something out of it because the microorganisms, they ferment dietary fiber into short chain fatty acids. And they Mm -hmm. also help in synthesizing vitamin B and vitamin K. Right. So it's a kind of evolutionary adaptation to live together with these bacteria so we can actually function and consume food that we do. Yeah, exactly. And and be as healthy as possible the way we do. And we don't have to like get these vitamins maybe from our diet that the Mm. bacteria provided. Yeah. Um, and the importance of these compounds, especially these short chain fatty acids, they act almost like a hormones and the gut flora can almost act like a, an endocrine organ, like uh, the pancreas or so on. So, uh, and it's shown that this dis- dysregulation of the gut flora has been shown to correlate with a host of inflammatory and autoimmune conditions. Um, so the, there's an increase there fi- therefore in this field of fecal transplants <laughs> um uh, i don't know if you're aware of it it's basically where you 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 transplant someone else's fecal material or like the bacteria from their fecal material yeah. into another person yeah so, in order so it's to not so it's not poo like specifically it's the bacteria that's what yeah that's yeah. what they're looking out for they don't look out exactly for just giving yeah. poo to someone it's about the the bacteria that is there yeah uh so the yeah it's it's got this field has grown massively and it has been using trials anyways for clear treating depression and in bipolar disorder uh but at the moment fecal transplants they're only primarily used in um, Clostridium difficile. It's a yeah. hospital-acquired superbug, um, and it has a near 100% success rate in treating it. Uh, and they generally use it in patients that don't respond to antibiotics in the hospital. They'll, they'll do this fecal transplant. Um, and it's been shown that, w- and it has been shown as well that when stool from depressed humans is transplanted into germ-free mice, like so m- mice that grow up uh in sterile environments with no uh normal gut microflora mm-hmm. they actually become uh have obtained depressive like behaviors so and I, just in case you were wondering about stool donors uh it actually is very difficult to become a, a stool donor just in case <laughs> you, if you were wanted to do it tom okay um, so just because i can do it doesn't mean i can i can do it yeah, well, like you were like, oh, uh, it, it'd be easy to do, but yeah. it's actually not because you have to be rigor- rigorously screened. Um, I think you're going to mention it, but with your blood transfusion, but it's like you have to answer a similar tr- uh, questionnaire to like uh, what you would do if you were transfusing blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as well, like you have to screen the, the fecal material for a lot of different bacteria, disease causing bacteria. And like it is 
like fecal material at the end of the day. So there is a lot of harmful bacteria there. So it's it's very difficult to establish what is healthy and what is a not healthy fecal material. And then just for example, there was one study that they had 322 prospective donors and they only accepted two after screening. So there's a lot of different details to go into. And if you think, oh, this is like way over the top, there actually has been deaths linked to this fecal transplant because it is kind of dangerous in a way. And the FDA have a lot of different uh, criteria and guidelines that you need to follow in order to to do it. Yeah. So again, it's it's not as easy as drying up some fecal sample and giving it to someone. There's a lot of work and safety nets in place to make sure that what we do is beneficial mm, yeah. uh, just shows like even the most like funny topic in science it's like yeah. it's still looked into very carefully and diligently because at the end of the day there's a human life at risk yeah, so, yeah. i know yeah. it's it sounds funny but like actually yeah there is a lot of um a lot of details you need to find out um yeah i i th- like th- i was i would go through the the what the donors need to do but it's exactly if you've ever given blood it's basically the same questions you would ask like right. for that if you, like are you use illicit drug use no exposure with hiv uh unprotected intercourse sex tattoo or piercings within the last six months etc etc right. but then i think there's the added like they have to screen it for like i suppose more um uh antibiotic resistant organisms because i think that's mm. a big issue if there is if there is a difficulty and the patient becomes ill they need to be able to somewhat be able to treat them um and yeah there's no register for this actually in ireland because i was trying to see if this is possible mm-hmm. uh, and it's not really clear how much uh fecal um microbial transport happens in ireland so at the moment if you wanted to donate in ireland i don't think it's possible i think they must i don't know where they if you if you're getting it done in Ireland because I'm sure it does happen I don't know where they obtain it they obviously must import it from somewhere <laughs> so imagine yeah if they only selected two people out of the pool of over 300 you say yeah yeah I, I'd say they must keep this 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 person under the under lock <laughs> and just feed feed them the exact things they need to eat and it's like this one person supplying poo tablets for the entire world <laughs> Yeah, it's similar like that. Um, wasn't there a guy in Australia with blood transfusion when he had uh, anti-D? Was it? Hemolytic disease of newborn. What, what I'm basically trying to say is that there was a guy who they used to get this anti-D antibody and he was the one who like saved so many countless babies' yeah. lives because they got the anti-D from him. Yeah. So like I'm sure I, they might have some equivalent of that for this uh, fecal matter transfer. <laughs> A universal poo donor. Yeah. Uh, do you, and I actually have the thing here. I don't know if you want to know that how they prepare the donor, like the, the fecal material. Oh, I think I know. How do they? <laughs> well, they, first they have to clean the uh, the recipient, right? Of ah, the, actually, I don't think that's necessary because okay, it's just you're know. just getting the fecal material. Oh, okay, I think you have to. Completely so w- w- what I have here is that the evening before it, the donor will take a capful of laxative. Oh. And then the next morning, it says here the donor will collect a fistful size amount of the stool in a hat, air quotes, 
which would be obtained at any pharmacy. And then in the hat, they add this saline and it's dissolved as much as possible with a blender or chopsticks. Oh, cool. And then it's filtered through a, a coffee filter. So don't mix this up with your coffee, Ellie, guys. <laughs> Uh, and then the fluid is is collected in a clean plastic container, refrigerator, or a cooler, while it's being taken to an endosc- endoscopy unit. It has to be used within six hours. So, okay. Uh, it's it's not too bad. So yeah, I, I mentioned the dangers as well of it. So I'll I'll give one positive. So I I we'll see if this, we have enough time because we've mm-hmm. we've talked about it a lot anyways. So one paper that was recently published in relation to like how uh the, the link between the 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 gut microbiome and in 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 pregnant mothers as well and how it can influence the child mm-hmm. um it showed that in pregnant mice specific maternal gut bacteria can produce molecules that are metabolic metabolic byproducts that can influence the neural development of certain sensory pathways in the fetus leading to lasting behavioral changes in the offspring so it actually could lead to um changes in the in the child as they grow up so what they did was that they showed that in brain the brain structure in embryos of pregnant mice that were germ free so the as their animals in sterile conditions they lack a microbiome or whose microbiome had been deleted by antibiotic treatment were different from embryos whose mother had a normal microbiome. And these changes were specific to circuits involved in sensory processing, such as auditory, visual somatosensory, so it's like perception of uh, sensations such as pain or pressure, pressure, and the motor responses. And when they took the neurons from the embryos and grew them in in vitro, they couldn't be corrected by adding the growth factors produced by embryos with an intact microbiome. So it just showed that these metabolic byproducts made by the microbiome can have a really big impact on, oh, wow. on the embryo being developed. And they wanted to see if this would have long-lasting effects in the offspring. Mm-hmm. So they examined the offspring of these germ-free and antibiotic-treated mothers in adulthood uh, using a range of different behavioral tests. And they found that the mice born to mothers with a deficient microbiome had impaired responses to heat, sound, and pressure compared to animals whose mother had a normal microbiome. Um, But they didn't observe any problems in visual and motor coordination tests. And then when they inoculated the previous germ-free mice with specific bacterial groups to see, okay, which bacterial groups are responsible for like these metabolic mm-hmm. byproducts, they found that certain spore-forming clostridium species, um, when they inoculated them, the abnormalities did not occur. So it's really uh, interesting to see that it was a specific uh, bacterial species. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's hard to know how these mechanisms occur because it's like these metabolites produced by the gut microbes have to travel along the bloodstream and then they're absorbed by the placenta. Mm-hmm. This is what they're speculating. And they think that the impact of this is that maybe they need to uh, supplement mothers with these metabolites could help in rescuing in in, patient, in, in mothers anyways that have deficient uh, microbiome or sure. like a, a microbiome that's altered somehow. Um, and they said the su- supplementation in microbiota deficient pregnant mice was also shown to prevent the behavioral deficits that would have occurred in their offspring. Behavioral so, deficit. Yeah, so basically, like this, this abnormal response to 
heat, sound, and pressure. Okay, yeah. yeah. I don't All know. Right. Exa- I, did, I didn't see specifically what 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 they meant by heat. Like, did that mean that they have a delay response to heat? I think as well, like when they played a loud sounds, that mm. they they would they, they wouldn't react as the the normal mice. Mm. They would still be able to perform the task, whereas the other ones, the other deficient uh, mice, they they didn't really react uh, appropriately. So may and then when they they give them the supplemented them with these mi- microbiome products, um, they were showing that the defe- the behavioral deficits that would have occurred otherwise didn't occur. So like I know this was done in mice, but this could have really uh, important implications if it could translate to humans, um, as it could could be a a a a measure of like if a clinical intervention is needed. And and it could kind of be used as a biomarker in the future to monitor for to see if this abnormalities would occur. Um, so yeah, I, I, I this is just very new, mm. but it's I think it's really cool and an, one uh, example of how the microbiome can actually affect, like, mat- like even in the fetus, yeah. know, the development. Yeah, I just wonder how would they identify females would be beneficial in that yeah so they would need to try what they would need to do is what they would need to do is they need would translate that if the mother has like they need to identify this metabolic byproduct yeah. of the microbiome see if the mothers are lacking it track them versus like normal <laughs> healthy mothers and see if the if their children would um develop somehow differently than others so that that in a in itself would be a very difficult process to do because in, in these with my studies you have these conditions where you can introduce them but yeah. you can't really do that in humans so that's that's a huge the, study mm. to develop properly and then it's like properly and then how do you find because it's like in mice it's more i suppose a smaller microbiome number but it, in humans it'd be vastly more so you would need to like examine so many different metabolic pri- pathways and mm. and see like well, the question is ca- the question is how much different per per strain is the difference between mice and humans because if it's just if it would be the same bacteria just you know yeah. number wise exponentially greater then I think it would be easier to translate or to look for the same patterns. But if humans indeed do have a, like a completely different strains involved, uh, yeah, then to what extent can you translate uh, what you see in mice? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but interesting. Yeah. And then the other paper I wanted to talk about was, so this is like showing the positive, like, mm-hmm. oh, how it had different effects. Yeah. But the other one I wanted to talk about, which I thought was really interesting because, and I think this is the case in so many uh, science studies, but a lot more with these microbiome where I think you, you've heard it as well, like how microbiome seems to be responsible for depression, obesity, mm-hmm. inflammatory diseases, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these, what a lot of these papers do is they fall into a trap where they, they don't, really distinguish uh between a causal and a correlative relationship so what this means is that correlation is when there is a relationship or a pattern between the two 
where causation means one event causes the other happen. So what this basically means is that when this bacteria is present or when this bacteria is absent, this disease is more common. But that's it doesn't mean that the bacteria, because they're absent, is causing that disease. Mm. It just seems to be uh, as a consequence of the disease and that there might be something else going on and they need to correct for this yeah. in the study. But a lot of the time they don't really do that. And then they're like, oh, this bacteria, because it's not present, causes the disease. But they need to m- examine w- why what other factors could be causing it that as a consequence is causing this bacteria to be deficient it's not because of the deficiency yeah. of the bacteria that's causing the disease yeah this is difficult because there's many physiological and lifestyle differences that can exist between individuals who are healthy and those that have the illness of interest and confounders might underlie the discrepancies observed between the outcomes of different studies because mm. a lot of these studies have been done that have tried to supplement um the microbiome and they don't really have the effect so maybe this is the reason why because we're we're finding causation when it's not the case yeah Yeah. um so this paper they looked into this and they first considered um physiological and lifestyle differences between people with and without a particular disease and they identified the difference that might be associated with the composition of the gut microbiome Uh, and yeah, without knowing these differences, you might be like, oh, uh, so the person has diabetes and one person doesn't have diabetes. And then you would look at the microbiome. One is like, they're different. But then if yeah. you would look at them closely, you'd be like, the person who doesn't have diabetes is way healthier, like less BMI, et cetera, et cetera. The person who has diabetes, unhealthy and all that. And then they'd be like, oh, so this microbiome, this is what's causing it. But then if you actually look closely and see other other factors, it's just because of them that's causing this change. Yeah. So what they did in this paper, they matched this individuals with a particular condition with healthy individuals with regard to like confounders such as age, gender, BMI. Uh, and this is generally used in observational studies, like uh, when you're trying to look, when you don't do the study actively, you're looking at the data that you have in front of you. Mm-hmm. And they found that gender, age, bowel movement quality, so solid, normal, or loose, um, BMI, and alcohol consumption are the strongest potential confounders and are strongly associated with this microbiome composition and disease status. Uh, And this can be typically seen in like type 2 diabetes, where you compare individuals with and without the disease. You would normally see this statistically difference, but if you actually match them on any of these... Uh, confounders you don't it's they don't actually become statistically significant anymore um but the issue with doing this method like you would think oh this is logical why wouldn't you do this normally Mm -hmm. is that when you match disease symptoms and healthy individuals uh the healthy so if you're matching them on symptoms like let's just say if if they have an unhealthy lifestyle yeah um and you're trying to match them uh, and one person you think is healthy and the other one isn't, they both could actually, the person who's healthy could actually be undiagnosed or on the path to being sick. And you're compare, trying to compare then a difference in very two, actually very uh, very similar individuals mm-hmm. when there actually isn't very, there isn't any difference. You're like missing the difference because they actually should be in the same group. 
and that's the problem when you're trying to overmatch these people that mm. you end up uh, losing out on actual real differences. Mm. Um, for example, if you match people on the level of alcohol intake when you're studying alcohol liver disease or like those who heavily smoke and uh, develop lung cancer, you're going to end up like missing the uh, real differences because they're very similar and they're they're very similar uh, individuals and that they're going to have the similar um outcomes but you're you're kind of trying to find a difference in in the in the in what they have i, I think i'm not doing a great job explaining it does that somewhat make sense i think i think it's what you're saying is that what we think it's a normal individual it m- just because it doesn't have symptoms it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right individual for the comparison study yeah and it's just that i what i'm more like trying to say is that there's no right way about it it's like yeah. this is the traps you can fall into is that when you're trying to overly match you it's, end up it, yeah you kind of like you really you really have to be invested in the science in the nutrition science or yeah go, uh, this microbiome science to kind of like yeah i think you have to be an expert to kind of understand how and how you're designing these studies because mm. it seems to be like really crucial to get the right people into the right groups when you study them yeah yeah and yeah. i think as well it's the, it raises the whole thing is like what's healthy in in a population because yeah. there's so much like w- w- how do you classify healthy is it like lifestyle is it like blood results is it etc etc so it's just when you're trying to actually compare healthy individuals it's kind of difficult perhaps uh, perhaps we should step away from this from this idea that there are some things that are beneficial for a group and start focusing more on an on the level of individual what is good for an yeah individual, yeah you know true. i suppose we're trying they're trying to make big generalizations based yeah, on groups I think that's the but then it's just slow much slower yeah research into it um, and it just shows again like how much easier you can create this um potential study environments in the lab with your animal models when you can actually raise them in the sterile condition and then uh introduce um, microbiome um into them to kind of study and compare effects versus in the real world when it's extremely hard to translate what you see um because in a way our body works and it's a perfect order disguised as a chaos i think because yeah. every it seems like so many things is happening and yet there is some order to it and i think it could be so hard to study in the real world when we when the researchers don't really have that control over the environment mm, yeah so yeah it's just something i think people need to be aware of when they hear these studies that it it, it does sound like it can be match like it can there can be a link but then uh they really need to understand what could possibly other reasons be caused for it and um and that we, i think you really do need to have a very tailored approach for individuals if you want to undergo this kind of treatment yeah and uh yeah i i still i think i might come back to this topic again and like look at his war from the because i didn't really include any in the like depression or yeah. bipolar disease but i think just to kind of give people a taste of what this subject is about um but again yeah it's it'll be a big struggle in this field because 
a lot of there's so many papers that are out there like I think there's millions of papers I would say on this in this field and like how certain cancers are caused by this but it's just actually being able to conclusively translate this to oh if you can take this certain bacteria pill or fecal pill that it would it'd improve it whereas it's like it's not that easy and that it might be just more down to lifestyle mm. or diet or other factors uh so yeah just try and be healthier and yeah. don't be so focused on oh if i if i can i can still eat the same but like if i just get this fecal transplant that my depression will go away or my obesity will go away like no that doesn't how it work yeah and i suppose there's always risks as well with this because i feel like we don't really know the links between the gut microbiome and like brain chemistry mm. and if you go in ahead and like change that like who knows what the effects would ha- be on your normal biochemistry so yeah. i think you can't really be be just willingly giving people a dose of this transplant um when you don't really know the long-term effects are um, but it's it's such an interesting dis- topic and a discussion and i think I'd love to see more mm. like really good research done in this area. Um, but yeah, just just to be be skeptical, I suppose. Yes. I think it also can be um, just I think final remarks. I think it also can be um, very for some people it could be devastating at the existential level where they when they can realize that some of their decisions are dictated by this microorganism yeah. rather than by themselves. So, um, you know, where is your free will now? And um, another thing that I wanted to say is also that I, s- I think people have these tendencies of thinking of a drug t- that when I take a drug, it will elevate the symptoms. So that's what you mentioned with like, oh, if I take this, I can get rid of obesity. But at the same time, I could ma- maintain my, my dietary choices uh, mm. to the same extent. And I don't think this is the point of the drug. The drug should attack the cause of the program rather than just elevate symptoms you know because when you elevate symptoms you're not actually curing anything you're just making that person feel better but you're not reaching the the source of the problem so i think you mentioned it that it has to be a combination of when it comes to fruition the combination of this microbiome treatment in whatever form that's gonna be together with some uh, changes into the lifestyle whether it's a smoking or uncontrolled food uh, consumption or uh, therapy, drug abuse or therapy whatever like it's just yeah. it's it, we shouldn't be thinking like oh i'm just gonna take a pill and it's go away it's never like mm. symptoms are not the cause yeah and like i think in a way though if they did ever ever develop these um microbiome pills for like treating depression i suppose mm. it'd be so much sa- not well safer and healthier than taking these other like for treating depression right now which is a lot of like different Un- chemicals yeah, and it, I suppose it, you, yeah you kind of be like i know where it come I, well not no you would kind of feel like it's this bacteria that it it will it's not um some weird chemical that i'm introducing not to say like antidepressants are dangerous or anything uh like they, there is a lot of work done in that area i'm just saying like uh it, it kind of 
I suppose, is it that a weird thing to say? It's a more natural. <laughs> yeah, I can just see people in the I future. I don't want to say, well, like, unnatural things aren't good for you. I'm just saying, like, it yeah. is kind of... <laughs> like, oh, you still taking antidepressants? Yeah. Well, I'm actually on my own supply. <laughs> <laughs> my friend uh, is able to make these tablets for me. He's so healthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a weird thing like as well like isn't it yeah imagine the olympians or these people who do ultra marathons and you get yeah like could you could you could you give us some like of your feces yeah is that an, could that be another form of doping right <laughs> like when tiger woods got his um uh, eye surgery is that a form of doping for golf to see better you, you know, know like it's taking yeah. a poo tablet to have more stamina or resistance on long run marathons for example i don't know is that a form of cheating or is that just form of maintaining a healthy diet or healthy well-being or whatever you know yeah These okay. are the, i think that's above our pay grade i think i think yeah it's taking a steroids a <laughs> Just a well, part yeah, of your healthy yeah. lifestyle, or is it to have a <laughs> advantage yeah. in competition? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I hope that maybe help people, and uh, yeah, just if you had, if you have heard any interesting papers with the microbiome, let's, let's send mm. it on to us. Actually, I'll be interested yeah. to read and see if they do fall into this trap, or um, can they actually conclusively make the link? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's all I wanted to say on that. Probably don't try to make your own tablets. No, don't please. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So then on to you, Tom. Yes. Um, from your the... first part on whole um, blood transfusion and maybe how maybe to be able to use non-blood tra- products. In yes, the exactly. That's where I'm. That's where this segment's gonna head towards so um i thought i'll be able to squeeze everything into one episode but then i we we decided that uh, john will talk about mars and you had your thing and i just didn't want to like rush it so i said okay i'm just gonna split it in two so today we just kind of a blood transfusion why is it important and characteristics of good oxygen carrier um that we already have in our body and next time when i talk to you guys we look exclusively into blood substitutes without having the need to repeat what was said today so um evan question for you (laughs) question time (laughs) question time Uh, can you and it's not a tricky question um do we need blood and what is blood (laughs) this is a philosophical uh, philosophical question philosophical question yeah um yeah we need blood obviously obviously Um, what was the other question? And what is blood? Oh, what is blood? Blood yeah. is just like it's like a cell in your body, um, that helps transport oxygen to your muscles and your organs and your tissues. Wait, that's red blood cell. But like when I say when like it's a blood is a obviously a combination of. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So your blood is combination of these red blood cells which help transport oxygen around the body, and then mm. you have your immune cells. Yeah, exactly. So there is a so you can consider blood as a form of a tissue because there is a you have multiple different cells suspended in plasma, which is the actual watery part of the blood, and then the rich color is given by red blood cells that have hemoglobin. Uh, blood is an important connect form of a connective tissue, and one of its role is um, delivery of oxygen. Its main role. Um, there are other functions of blood as well 
but for our purposes the delivery of oxygen is uh, is the most important one and what is linked with this is the science of blood transfusion um which believe it or not first uh first successful um, blood transfusion uh in dogs first happened in 1662 so that's a while ago while ago then it took uh, 150 years to perform first human to human successful blood transfusion and then it wasn't until 1900 till Karl Landstein discovered the ABO blood group um on which which was the most important one and after that the next blood groups were being discovered and the concept of the blood group is very important for uh, for the blood transfusion science because, uh, and again, I'm going to turn into our resident immunologist, Evan. <laughs> why, why is it so important, Evan, uh, from the immunological point of view, uh, to match uh, donors and recipients in terms of ABO blood group? Um, because it's pretty much, if you mismatch blood transfusion with the ABOs, then it's fatal, really, it, isn't it? Exactly, because if you are a person who has a blood group A, uh, you carry antibodies to blood group B, which is very, uh, very peculiar. If you are blood group B, then you have uh, antibodies to blood group A. If you are blood group O, that means that you don't have uh, any antigens expressed on your red blood cells and you carry both types of antibodies, A and B. And then finally, um, the most rare blood group, when AB, where you express antigen A and B on the surface of the red blood cells, um, you don't have any antibodies because they would, if you have either, they would react with your own cells, which is undesirable one. Mm. So this is like the first thing when you think about blood substitutes, you have to start thinking about it cannot have antigens because it cannot have ABO antigens because people already have antibodies against these things. And for that matter, it can't really have any antigens that are already present on the red blood cells because there is a multitude of different blood groups and all of them can cause immunization. And if a person has already been immunized, uh, in, for example, if that person is on the, um, on the, treatment, on the uh, transfusion treatment, like a person with leukemia or uh, any other uh, hemoglobin disease, like thalassemias, they are on the repetitive treatment with blood transfusions and every consecutive blood transfusion gives you a higher risk of becoming immunized because sometimes it could be really hard to match uh, recipients uh, for all the, to match the donor for all the requirements for the recipient. So in terms of uh, blood transfusion substitutes, it's uh, blood substitutes, it's very important that they will not cause any adverse reaction um when you when you transfuse the blood yeah so just and it just uh like so basically with these antibodies they're naturally ones against abo it's like if you give the person the wrong abo group so if you give someone o like an a or b it just like you're basically your body attack like treats it as foreign exactly and it'll cause it an immune reaction and like it, it basically if your blood is being attacked then you're in serious danger of of um, course yeah of being uh yeah Dying, like. dying, especially with the ABOs because it's such a quick immune reaction. You know, your antibodies recognize the antigen on the red cells. They and they, they start tagging it, and once the red that once the transfused red blood cells is tagged with antibodies, uh, they being hemolyzed. Whether yeah. it's uh, whether it's the hemolysis that take place in your 
blood circulation or whether it's the extensive hemolysis that take place in your spleen it's all very dangerous because you have release of a hemoglobin hemoglobin you have which equals release of iron so you have too much iron in your bloodstream and um, it's never good and what is most important you actually losing the capacity to deliver oxygen to your tissues because you're losing red blood cells and so it's a really spontaneous really quick reaction and it's hard to manage as well it also depends how much blood you've been transfused uh, before the reaction took place but it's really it's really tricky to overcome that's why there are so many checks in place uh, mm. so many cross cross matches being done that means before uh, before a patient can receive a blood in the lab there is this whole battery of tests carried out when you actually are making sure that there is nothing in the patient plasma in terms of antibodies that can cause the reaction and there is nothing on in the red blood cells that are being transfused that can trigger that reaction mm. so um it's very it's very important step uh, to get it done but as important as it is for the normal blood transfusion it could it possibly could be eliminated uh for the blood substitutes yeah. because when you think about the antigens on the red blood cells they are not only present on the red blood cells these antigens have a uh, these different antigens have a role uh, to perform in our normal other tissues other than red blood cells they are also expressed and they perform certain tissue it performs center perform certain role and uh, it's just it's just the evolutionary consequence that these antigens are also present on the red blood cells um so but yeah but as i said the blood substitutes they don't really need that you all they have to do is be able to carry oxygen into the tissues uh, I said blood had other functions, uh, such as uh, being able to clot bonds because we have platelets in our uh, blood. It can fight the infections, as Evan mentioned, because of the presence of white blood cells. It also regulates temperature and uh, get rid of the waste products. But these aspects of blood, they, they don't have to be fulfilled, I think, when, you, when we're thinking about blood substitute, because what you worry about is the delivery of oxygen into the tissue. Yeah. In the, and that could be very beneficial in, for example, third world countries where, um, where blood has a certain requirements to be stored at and certain expiry life, uh, ex expiry date, which, and that could be very hard, hard to maintain in the third world countries, you know, where, um, where in the developed countries, you have all of these established blood banks and blood transfusion centers when there is a capacity and demand to to process store storage and release blood units the same the same capacity and need might the same need might be present in the develop in the developing countries but the capacity might not be there so when you when you'll be able to introduce this uh, blood substitutes um with the extended life uh, shelf life and without this rigorous <laughs> Uh, storage requirements it will be it will be very beneficial for them but like so basically um with these blood replacement products mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you just want to be able to have something that a product that will be able to replace red blood cells specifically to transport oxygen around the body yeah. but you don't have to worry about like oh i need to match it for this a blood yeah. group or b blood group you can literally just 
get it get any general blood transfusion and give it to the individual and it it, it works and that's fine and you cut a lot of uh work about re- reactions and stuff yeah yeah out. so theoretically the turnaround time would be shorter between how between when the patient can receive the blood um from the point when he when he needs the blood uh, of course currently there are a number of protocols in hospitals that take care of this there's if if the patient needs immediate blood because of a huge hemorrhage there are procedures in place and there's special selected unit of blood that are like emergency blood units that can be given to the person without if there is no time for a cross match um but of course there is always a link a risk link with that if you could minimize that risk that would be great for the patient and do do you want to mention as well what the universal universal donor oh yes so a person with the blood group o doesn't have any antigens on the surface of the red blood cells so this is a considered a universal donor because blood of that individual can be given to anyone because if you if you have uh, antibodies to blood group A that's fine there is no A antigens on the blood group O and if you have anti B that's also fine because there is no B antigens on the blood group O of course people with the blood group O have both types of antibodies but during the processing of the blood you're actually not getting transfused the entire whole blood pack that blood is being processed is being separated into different components one of them being purely red blood cells so they're being separated from any um, they're being separated from plasma so theoretically there should be no antibodies present in your red blood cells that's why you can you can easily transfuse them and in case of these massive hemorrhages when there is no time to cross match your blood uh, because by the time you get the result the patient is dead so no time these special red blood units are being transfused so first of all the blood has to be o it has to have a rhesus status negative and depending on the situation it also has an extended phenotype with the kid blood group doffy blood group J, uh, jk blood group mns blood group so there's yeah, so a lot just yeah just to let people know as well like it's not just because everyone knows abo and then there's the rhesus one yeah um, uh, but there is actually a lot more yeah. that theoretically can have an effect the transfusion as well so and and without even mentioning like the ethnic differences because different ethnic groups have different uh blood profiles in terms of expression of the antigens or uh, uh so that's like you know, the blood transfusion science is very fascinating and when you when you do get these um, samples from people who are not irish well i'm talking from the perspective of working in the blood bank in ireland it was uh, like one of the first question if it was a tricky case it was like a nationality or ethnic background because that could actually direct you towards what antigens are being expressed or what antigens are not being expressed statistically uh, speaking on the level of a population from a given ethnic background mm. um, so this just is all very well, important uh, yeah just to say uh, we're all represented as well here we're both blood group O. Yes, uh, so I'm blood group both. O. Are you also blood group O? I'm blood group O as well. Yeah. All right, John. But do I'm you know your blood group? No, I did the. I know my parents' blood group, so I did the thing where you can check mm-hmm. statistically the most likely. Okay. I can't remember what that was though. 
<laughs> well, I suppose it's not that it's not that important to know because even if it's in your wallet that I am a blood group O, you still getting tested. No one is gonna take your word for granted, and they never should because people lie. Do you uh, want to? Uh, I it's funny because we so we both did medical science and so we did worked in a uh transfusion like you you do transfusion in as your rotation yeah and they let us uh, uh type our blood yeah. cells is one of the things and you have a really funny story don't you oh, about yes. when you got blooded when you got blood typed um, <laughs> yeah because I couldn't yeah believe it. Uh, so yeah thanks i for bringing this up uh, <laughs> <laughs> so my entire life until i started the placement in the blood transfusion lab i thought my blood group was a because in fact that's how i was typed during when I was born, they took the blood sample and they typed it and it came out as A. Uh, so and my whole life I was living thinking that my blood group is A. And then uh, we did, we had the opportunity to mm, to type our own blood and I did it and it came out as O negative. And I was like, that's impossible. Like I did something wrong. And then uh, I talked to Leanne, she was my partner during the placement. I think she did also tests on my sample. She con she did it, and it came out as O as well. I was like, "There's there's something wrong with these reagents." You're raw, so you're both we're both making mistakes. We both making mistake, <laughs> and then I think a senior scientist did it as well. I was like, "Listen, this is something wrong here. I am blood group A, and it keeps coming out as O negative." And she did it as well, and then uh, I was like, well, "You have to be O. There's no like, there's three tests done." <laughs> Uh, three people like okay two tests were done by students so but then another was done by the by the senior I was like you just oh so that was a mistake <laughs> it has to be a mistake done in the hospital when I was born either it was a wrong transcription of results or it was a wrong result from the start and then I, I asked our lecturer like is it possible to change blood group <laughs> Like <laughs> you were so in denial, you're like, it like this couldn't be it possible. It's it, but it just shows, right? Like in my head, I was always a, and like I had all of the results in the world showing me the different way, and I was like, this is this is wrong. Like my belief is right, yeah, and then yeah. she says, not not unless you get a bone marrow transplant, and and then I called my mom and I was, what's up, mom? Why why my blood group doesn't <laughs> check out? What happened? And uh, my dad is actually O, and my mom has to be, my mom is A, but she has to be a heterozygote rather than mm. a homozygote. And I think she has to have an O, O allele. And I inherited my dad an O allele. He has to be a homozygote for, uh, for oh. being O because it's a recessive trait. And my mom has to be a heterozygote and I just inherited both recessive traits and that's why I'm all negative. Uh, so it was just, uh, yeah, yeah, I was, it just shows that if you convince yourself, you can have all of the results in front of you and you still won't believe it. This is funny for a, a blood, like it's just a blood transfusion. It's not that big of a deal. And you're still like, this yeah. can't be, this, I've been living a lie my whole life. Yeah, because I was, I, I identify myself as a member of a blood group A community. <laughs> I was one of them. And I just couldn't believe that I'm not anymore. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, so that was, uh, that was a bit shocking. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I looked, I looked up that, thing i did before i know one of one of my parents is b positive and the other parent is a positive i think so the thing gave me the most statistical likelihood mm -hmm. is that i'm a b 
I know though one of my siblings is O positive or negative. I can't remember. Um, and I've that's the lowest chance. Oh. Yeah. That's so weird because like if you're one of them's A and one of them B, they and both they have to be so- heterozygotes. Yeah. Mm, because the odds of that is very low. Mm. Yeah, just, uh, for me, it's on the pie chart. It's the lowest chance. And what percentage? Uh, like five percent, maybe. Mm. Because all the the ABO blood groups, they all come from the same gene per se, and it's just a the difference between A and B is a mutation that codes for a different beta galactosides enzyme that converts a H antigen, which is pre pre-antigen expressed on your red blood cells then your your gene code for these beta galactosidase enzyme and depending whether you have the a blood group a galactosidase or blood group b it can convert this h antigen different differently and that results either in blood group a or b if you if you have a null allele which means that it doesn't produce any enzyme uh, that means your H, your pre-antigen your h antigen stays the same um, and therefore you are blood group O. So yeah. that's in the nutshell how uh, how the t- genetics of ABO work. So, so yeah, it's it's uh I think everyone like lo- loves to show say how their what their ABO is because it's such interesting like mm. d- see differences in people. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so what what was um so what what's the challenges with this um these replacement blood sure. products like why so, why is it not or is this something you're going to talk about in the next episode? I would like to focus on the next episode on exactly what uh, what is wrong. But for n- I just like to say why just for now, uh, two more slides. Why red blood cells are so good at transplanting mm. trans- uh, transporting oxygen around the body. Um, so first of all, if you look at the red blood cells, it has a disc-like shape. You know this. Um, so it kind of goes inside in the middle from both sides and it goes outwards uh, at the edges. So this kind of concave shape and it has two It has a two benefits. First of all, red blood cells have to get through very tiny capillaries, which are the tiniest blood veins located perhaps in your, in your fingertips or very close to the surface of your skin. If you have a rigid red blood cells, not very elastic, it will be very hard to deliver oxygen to these um, extreme uh, locations in your body. But because of this concave shape, the red blood cells can adapt, can elongate, can twi- can reshape itself for the purpose of fitting into the very narrow capillaries. Next thing, red blood cells don't have nucleus, they don't have mitochondria, they don't really have any of the organelles that the normal cells have. Therefore, red blood cells cannot uh, divide because they cannot reproduce they only have a certain lifespan 120 days but because they gave up all of these organelles they have more room to pack themselves full of hemoglobin to just to increase the capacity of oxygen loading uh, abilities so they're making sacrifices to be able to to take on more oxygen so when your red blood cells are developing bone marrow before they are released they either at the stage of reticulocyte or a fully mature red blood cells and they either have are they are at the stage of kind of expelling the nucleus from themselves or actually already don't have a nucleus and that's that's when they're being released into a circulation and another thing uh, the last thing that makes uh, very important in oxygen delivery is the ability 
to make the, the binding of the oxygen reversible. It has to be reversible because if you if your blood substitute only has a capacity to bind oxygen but do not release an oxygen, well, like that, what's the point? It's useless. So our body can instruct yeah, red blood cells when to release and when to bind stronger stronger to the uh, to the oxygen. And kind of if you think about it, places like muscles, placenta. Um, they they create this environment when red blood cells are more happy to give up oxygen because first of all muscles need oxygen for the delivery of energy placenta needs oxygen because behind placenta there is a, a living thing developing which needs oxygen as well so places that have um, lower ph and a higher level of partial pressure and high temperature this kind of uh, promotes um, higher release of oxygen. Uh, and the opposite is true as well. Um, places that have a, a, a high pH, which means an alkaline pH rather than acidic pH, where the partial pressure of uh, CO2 is low and the low temperature that makes a hemoglobin more happy to bind more oxygen. And little did you know, these kind of uh, environments are present in our lungs. So you mm. want to, in our lungs, you want, you want your red blood cells to match up as much oxygen as possible. And then when they reach their target, just through circulation, there are certain environment, there are center uh, environments created that makes them more happy to give up that blood. So this is one of the things that the blood substitute has to fulfill. It, the, the binding of oxygen has to be reversible and it has to be somehow, I would think it has to be intelligent in that way that it knows which tissues require more oxygen and which tissues might not require as much oxygen, uh, which could be really tricky to design something like that. That's where I see the most problem. And I think the release of oxygen from, the, uh, from this blood substitute should be passive rather than energy requiring. So yeah. I think if you need like an ATP uh, to provide energy to release oxygen i think that is not necessarily a good approach i think yeah. it has to be reversible uh, yeah so it's like yeah basically they're so highly tailored to do what they do the red blood cells like, yeah to act to take up as much oxygen and give it exactly where it's needed yeah like it's such a well evolved system yeah and then to try and replicate that artificially is it's very difficult because if you get it wrong this like if you get it slightly wrong it has serious yeah. effects and yeah. you're almost like well if 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 there's a, a system in place already that can do this transfusion so effectively is it very necessary to find another way yeah about it yeah i know i was um and i was thinking when i started looking into this i was thinking how hard would it be just to manufacture red blood cells that are stripped of all the antigens and um the idea, like it seems like such a straightforward idea, but the the science of producing red blood cells it's still not at the same level that it should be to make it uh, make it financially even realistic, mm. because uh, a bone marrow must be a must be a peculiar place if it can continuously produce red blood cells and spit them out every day in in counts of millions and yeah. we can't reproduce that in vitro 
Yeah, we can't reproduce that. The, the volumes we're producing in is like 20 to 25 mils of blood at the high cost of production, which is like giving someone 25 mil of blood is just, it's pointless, you know, like a pack of blood can weigh, can weigh up to like two to three, 300 grams of, um, of red cells. Yeah. Uh, so that's a lot compared to like 25 mils and the 25 mils is not being produced in the space of uh, 15 minutes. Like it, it, it's very, it's just the technology is not yet there. Yeah. I can but, just imagine like in these big, like pharma companies, like, you know, where they have the big vats for yeah. like vaccines or like mm. drugs. And then just to, if you were to do that, just to like specifically make red blood cells, it seems like one vat would like compared to other drugs, you could drugs which could serve a lot of people like one of out of like some red blood cells like it wouldn't really be able to serve that many people because but the demand like, is crazy yeah exactly yeah that's it like so it's like you're never going to be able to reach the demand yeah and, would be, would be and as well i suppose if you, if you could got the only way i could think is if if you could get one something that would last a long time way longer than currently mm. red blood cells can last then maybe you could work and if you could scale it up hugely yeah but then it's like how i think you nearly need to scale up massively to make it anyway profitable and it's yeah. just like why would the demand like when there's a service there already it's like how what what what, what the what would be the demand for scaling yeah. it up yeah so. it, it has to be the situations you know this dire situation um, yeah where you can but See, but because if you're if you find yourself in this dire situation, you you and if you need a mat blood transfusion, you're already on the edge of going, you know, over the bridge. So uh, you really want to make sure that the pro the, the the artificial blood substitutes that you will be given to someone that it will does will perform at hundred percent because you don't want to give someone something that's just gonna push them further yeah. you know so um what we're gonna focus next time um when i'm gonna talk about this um i have already a couple of candidates that i like to look at so first of all we have this um uh this hemoglobin based uh, artificial blood substitutes um which are in the name suggest based on the hemoglobin which is um which is a part of red blood cells that has the ability to bind oxygen um, each hemoglobin molecule can bind four oxygen because each hemoglobin molecule has four uh, iron uh, atoms inside. And this iron gives us this red color of the blood. Um, so that's how, it, that's, how hemo, that's how hemoglobin works. It, it, it has this ring structure um, that attracts oxygen. And as I said, each hemoglobin can bind four oxygen atoms. Um, so it's a very efficient molecule, as you can see, because there is millions of hemoglobins in one red blood cell. So um, there is a work to around this hemoglobin-like artificial blood um, substitutes. And one of them is a HBOC201 called Hemopure, uh, or another name for this hemoglobin glutamer 250. Another um, another uh, blood substitute is sanguinate, is a pegylated uh, hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier, but has a different qualities than the hemopure I mentioned uh, previously. And another thing that I'm gonna look into is the perfluorocarbon emulsions, which are synthetic products composed of hydrophobic oxygen, perfluorocarbon, which is like a supporting element 
and it's kind of I don't I still don't understand what it is. It's somewhere in between being a liquid and a solid, which I have to look more into it. But on some of these products that I've mentioned, there are clinical trials, multiple clinical trials, not only to see are they like a generic, uh, good generic oxygen um, blood sub, uh, substitute, but rather how they perform in different scenarios of blood transfusion requirements. Um, so there, there are things in clinical trials, and these are the things I would look in in the next episode. So I hope you enjoy this little um, uh, cover of uh, blood transfusion before a little we... t- is tease of blood transfusion yeah, and before, uh, um, you need to definitely tune in to get the get the full story next time yes because um it's super interesting and um yeah. I, I like i work in the blood transfusion and uh just coming back to the science of it was <laughs> reminded me of my young days <laughs> time's gone yes past. yeah no i i'm really interested to hear what these um blood trans replacement products are yeah. and how far along they are and actually how possible that they um can be used in the future so yeah and maybe and if like, you if you work in blood transfusion labs anywhere and you have come came across these blood substitutes let us know how does your lab feels about them whether you use them or not if you are allowed maybe uh maybe you're not allowed to talk about these things then in that case ndas yeah yeah no i'm, I'm really excited cool um yeah that was really interesting so i hope you all are a bit wiser now about blood transfusion and ABO groups and all that stuff. That was our episode today. Yeah, so we kind of talked about the vaccine. Tom gave us some more info about LSD, microdosing. <laughs> I tried to give you a bit more context about the microbiome and maybe not to inter- interpret everything you hear, but it's still very much a promising topic. And Tom gave us part one of his blood transfusion talk. Yes. And thanks again to John as well for joining with the perseverance and the rover thank you John. you're welcome no problem uh, and we'll uh i'm sure we'll find something else to bring you on for <laughs> well i'm always here in the background anyway yeah, in, the, yeah. in the shadows <laughs> for for our next episode we have a, another interview with a very well-known uh, science guest um he is giving a lot of um info about the pandemic on media so uh, we're really excited to have him on and we're we'll lucky that he agreed yeah and uh we'll give you more context closer to the time but uh i hope you can join us for then yeah um but so yeah that was that was his episode i hope you enjoyed it and uh yeah stay skeptical guys and we'll chat to you on the next one yeah stay skeptical have a nice one bye bye